0: We're all slowly working our way out of this now, right? Things are opening up a bit, some places are hitting their second wave, but we're working our way out of it. I've talked to a lot of designers and listeners and folks during lockdown, and many folks shared with me what was keeping them inspired during this time. I personally fell deep into history books again, which led me to Band of Brothers, which eventually led me to one of the most strange yet beautiful podcasts I've ever heard in my life. It's a podcast called Dead Eyes, hosted by actor-comedian Connor Ratliff. The whole theme is him trying to solve a very stupid mystery that has haunted him for two decades. Why Tom Hanks fired him from a small role in the 2001 HBO miniseries Band of Brothers. Tons of other folks are involved, from Seth Rogen to songwriter Amy Mann. What really struck me throughout the entire experience, and honestly moved me, was it's a journey of failure and moving on. I was moved to tears on a few episodes. I had to talk to him. Because at the end of the day, every single guest and listener is asking themselves the same question If the world rejects me, is it worth trying again? It's Blamo. I'm Jeremy Kirkland. My guest this week is Connor Ratliff, actor, improv performer, and host of the podcast Dead Eyes. Connor and I discuss how moving from being an amateur to a professional actor ruined it for him, and how he discovered the joy of performance through improv, how he was fired by Tom Hanks because he had, quote, dead eyes, quote, and how that turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to him rowing blazers the irreverent vintage inspired new york brand worn by the likes of timothy chalamet and russell westbrook is launching its fall winter 2020 collection and it's a tribute to princess diana in the early 80s yes every mood board you've ever had you can now buy aka it's all we want right now look rowing blazers is a brand i've been in awe of since they launched, and they're a true example of creating their own lane in this fashion world This new collection includes 80s inspired French terry sweats and tees, deep pile Sherpa jockey fleeces, rugby shirts inspired by climbing culture and Dutch student societies. I mean, what the heck, it's amazing. The collection also includes collaborations with several British designers, closely associated with the late Princess of Wales. And as usual, lots of amazing collabs launching too. Right now, Rowing Blazers is offering 10% off for Blamo listeners. Just enter promo code Blamo at checkout. That's rowingblazers.com and enter B L A M O, the podcast. Get it? Blamo at checkout for 10% off your order. Mr. Connor Ratliff, thank you. Thank you very much for chatting. And to kind of like jump way back from talking to other folks in the UCB scene, you are kind of like a wonder story of someone who went in and just like shot to the
1: top immediately i started in may of 2009 okay and uh i don't know that there I, I think part of it was the fact that i was already i was like 33 when i started mm-hmm. taking classes so a lot of the people i was in class with were in their early 20s or even some that were a little younger and uh so yeah i i take my first improv class in may of 2009 and then i was on herald night in january of 2011 and i was on the stepfathers which is a weekend team by september of 2011 so for that's a very for people who've taken classes that's an absurdly short gestation period to go from not knowing how to do it <laughs> to uh a little over uh, uh 2 years later being on you know one of the best teams at the theater with people who are who really put in the time, you know? Yeah, and but but for those, it's interesting because for those, uh, uh, you know, it was like a little over a year and a half to get on a house team. During that time, all I did was improv. Like I really, I was working full time at a bookstore. Okay, but pretty what much bookstore? Barnes and Noble Union Square. All right, I, my I man. worked. I worked there for thirteen years. I worked there from like two thousand two to two thousand fifteen. And I really, I really just, I read everything I could read about improv. I read every book I could get my hands on about improv. I was, I never stopped doing like indie shows, taking classes. Like I i was taking classes at a pace that was so fast that they actually, I wouldn't have been able to do that a couple of years later as the school kept getting bigger because, I would literally, you you'd, you'd you'd your your class would end and then you'd have a class show, which would sometimes be a few days later. Mm-hmm. I would sometimes start my next class in the day between the final class and the class show. Like I would I would start three oh one like two days before I had my two oh one class show. I was just I was so eager to get on to the next thing. So that's was not almost- a
0: common thing though, right? I mean it's you, you have to be kind of accepted into the higher levels, right? You can't just say, oh, I want to take level five, where it's like, no, you need to kind of prove that you're good
1: enough to get to there. The more popular the classes got, the more they had to sort of put in guardrails just in terms of... Um, when I was taking classes, you got you took your first four, like Improv 101 through 401, and then you had to get approved to get into advanced study. And I think there are, since then, they added a few more things where it's like, you got up to 201 and you had to get approved to get up to 301. So, it's something like that where there were a few more sort of, like, checkpoints. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, partly partly because, um, you know, they genuinely seemed like they didn't want to, you know, give people the false impression that if you took a class, it meant you were going to get on a team. Like, I was told in my very first class that it was like... Not to expect that, that the 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 percentage chance that you would get onto a team, there's just there's thousands of people taking classes and there's a very limited number of spots on house teams. Yeah. And so I, I, there was a point where they had to do a thing where people would keep taking 401 again and again, and they had to put in a, a limit where if you took it a certain number of times, they would give you a free one. And if you didn't pass that, you couldn't take another 401 because they were wanting to discourage people from... uh. Taking classes when it clearly was like a lost cause, you know, like um, that kind of false hope can make <laughs> people feel pretty bad.
0: Um, well, and but you had acting experience
1: before all of this, right? Yeah, I went to drama school. I, I mean, that's what the the podcast is about. Sort of my my acting career has two different parts with a with a decade and a half gap in between because i I want when I was a very young, I wanted to be a cartoonist or an animator, and then at cool. a certain and at a certain point, I came to a realization that i I didn't like it enough to have it be a thing that I would be required to do all the time like i I remember having the thought that it would feel terrible to have to draw something when I didn't want to draw something. I had this I had this vision of myself as like a fifty year old man with like sore hands who was like having to draw a character that I was tired of drawing or something and it seemed not fun. And I was doing plays in school and I like doing comedy things. And so I went to, first I went to, I did two years of the university of Missouri, Columbia, and then things uh, weren't feeling right for me there. So I went to England to go to drama school. Big, big difference at also, you know, being from the Midwest, you don't have
0: very many Missourians skip over the pond to London.
1: Yeah. I, I saw a, an article, tiny little, you know, in USA today, they have like at the side of the like life section. There's like these little paragraph long little blurb news items. And there was a picture, there was a picture of Elvis Costello and it said, Paul McCartney is opening a performing arts Academy in Liverpool. And Elvis Costello is going to teach there. And I was a huge, I still am a huge Elvis Costello fan. And I wrote away for information because not because I thought I was going to go to the school. I was just like, oh, I wonder what he's teaching. So I sent away for like the brochure. And then I got this very impressive looking thing. And I as I was reading through it, I noticed they had an acting course. And the whole point of the school was um, Paul McCartney was like putting his own money into it. It was the it was the actual school building where I think he had met George Harrison and oh my it god! Had, it had fallen into like it was basically an abandoned building, and he was like, "That's a shame. We should put money into it, fix it up, turn it into a performing arts school." And so I did that. I I, I went to New York and I auditioned for them, and and then I got in, and then I and then I immediately regretted it. I was like, I remember flying to Liverpool uh, the first time and thinking, "What have I done? Like, why am I? I'm going to this like depressing northern like industrial town that like." Uh, you could still feel like the Thatcher era sort of like gloom as had still was still like in the air, and but then I graduated, I got an agent, and almost immediately like got a part in a play, and so it felt like uh, for a while there it felt like a really good idea, but then I kept liking it less and less. Um, Why was that? Um. Well, the first thing that I got was uh, a role in a play that was – it was a new play, and it was at the Royal Court Theater, and it was really good. And I had a really good part in it, but it was a limited run. It was like like an eight-week run. And the thing that was bad about it was that it was over so quick. And when it was over, nothing – then it was like a year and a half of nothing, where I would just – I would get auditions, and half the time – I would say more than half the time, the things I was auditioning for were – Things I didn't want to do, like I would read the script and I'd be like, "Oh God, this play is not very good," or uh, you know. And you obviously you want to book the work, but I was like spending all my time. I was working at Ticketmaster in Leicester Square, and then and then anytime I got an audition, it was always a headache because you had to like get out of work and you'd have to like lie about like, "Oh, I have to do this or I have to do that." And every time you got an audition, it was like you have to be at this place tomorrow at this time, and I was like, "Oh God, now I got to figure out how to." Get out of work, and I got to get there, but not lose my job, and and then you'd go and you'd audition, and and I wouldn't get it, and and then after after a period of time, it really started to wear on me. So there's a desire for this high impact art based
0: on the education you had, and also r- right where you go to immediately after that.
1: Um, then I booked Band of Brothers, and I really felt like, well, this is what I've been waiting for. This is going to be like a big opportunity for me, even though it was a tiny part. And, and then when, when Band of Brothers, when that experience went South, it just sort of coincided with a moment where I thought, I don't, I don't think I want to do this anymore. Like I don't want to spend all my time auditioning for things uh, that I don't want to do that I don't get, you know? (laughs) And then, and then I moved to New York in 2002 after a little time off from it thinking well I'll try again like I'll see what I can do. And I just had no luck. No one I couldn't But then then you you obviously something changes
0: cuz you kind of pivot hard to comedy, improv comedy, which is another you could argue that's a, another
1: very high art format of acting. I I certainly think it is and I resisted it for years because my dad had done improv uh, back in Chicago in the early 1970s. Um, he, was, he was starting out and trying to be an actor. And he ended up, he ended up uh, dropping that to be a, a local weatherman and kids show host in Jefferson City, Missouri. But he started off in Chicago trying to be an actor. And he saw a notice up uh, auditions for an improv group. And it was Del Close um, who <laughs> w- was running this group. It was basically Del Close, who's one of sort of like the founders of like modern long-form improv. He was sort of always like on again, off again with Second City, where like he would quit or they would fire him and then they'd hire him back or he'd go back to them. This was during, during one of the off periods where he was out doing his own thing. So he had put up a notice, auditions for improv, my dad auditioned, and he basically, it was basically like. Del Close was putting together a single improv team. My dad auditioned and he got to be on that team. No classes, no training. He was just in the in the group, and they did shows for I, I guess about a year. Uh, my dad remembers people from Second City coming to watch their shows. He specifically remembers one show where like uh, John Belushi and a bunch of other like pre SNL John Belushi, and uh, you can probably like imagine. Oh, it might have been could have been any number of people that we now know as like comedy legends or whatever, but they came and watched the show. And my dad said, he just remembers John Belushi sitting there aggressively, not laughing at their show. Like, what (laughs) what is this? You know? Yeah. Um, So for the years that I was in New York, where I was just working in a bookstore, not trying to be an actor, my parents would every now and then they would say, well, you know, like, Amy Poehler has a theater, and and, and they do classes, and you could take an improv class. So wait, and they're I, encouraging you to do this? Yeah, my parents were encouraging me, and I was not interested. I went and saw I went and saw a show at the UCB in 2004. I think it was 2003, 2004, somewhere around then. I thought it was really funny, but I didn't see myself being part of it. Like I didn't, I didn't look at the show and think I should be up there. Uh, a friend of mine, um, I knew somebody who she was dating, someone who was a performer at UCB. And she said, do you want to come see this show? My boyfriend's in. I said, sure. Yeah, I'll go see it. I've been there before. That's funny. And, uh, I went to the theater and this one I thought was really good. And it was like a couple of shows paired together. I thought both shows were good. So I was asking this guy afterwards, I was saying, um, how do people, I like this theater. Like, how do people get to be in shows here? And he said, oh, well, first you take classes. I was like, "Never mind. I don't need to hear that. I don't, (laughs) I don't need to hear like, the rest I of I have like, a drama degree. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I already did that. I also did, never felt like I learned that much in drama school. Like I, I never, I felt like I learned by doing plays in drama school, but the classes, I never got anything out of an acting class. I never mm. I never felt like any acting classes made me a better actor. I, when I would do a play, I would get a little better each time I did a play. But doing acting classes always felt, they just did not connect with me. And so the idea of taking an improv class was just, I couldn't bear it. I, I just thought no way this is some uh, this is how they make their money. I don't want to do that like I, I won't I won't do well I won't learn anything. And so I avoided it for a long time and then something I don't even know remember what it was that sparked me taking the class but at a certain point I thought, you know what I could just take a class and see if I like it. I think I just, I saw a few more things at UCB. Well, because
0: they're always free. Like there, there's like a one initial class that's like a walk-in free thing to kind of like test it out, right? I don't remember
1: there ever being a free one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think some schools have that or maybe there's some classes where yeah, maybe you do that. But, yeah. yeah, but no, I remember thinking, well, if I don't like this, then I've just wasted, you know, like a few hundred dollars or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember in the very first class, thinking, this is hard. I don't know how to do this. And I thought, it's weird. Why is this so hard? Because I know how to act and I think I'm funny, but I'm not good at this. Mm. And I remember in one of those early classes, trying to do something where I was like trying to be funny and the teacher was very, very nice about it. I, my teacher was this woman named Betsy Stover. And she very gently, I think, gave me a note about something. And it wasn't even the note. It was sort of the the tone of the note that was kind of like, she didn't say this. This is me projecting onto her. But what I was getting from her was, you're trying too hard to be funny. Like, don't try so hard to be funny. It it, it sort of like stripped me to the core where I was just like, I need to figure out why scenes work, why scenes don't. What is, what is the thing that makes someone able to be completely relaxed and confident on stage when they don't know what's going to happen. And then sort of like knuckled down and tried to figure out what this thing was. And that was my focus for like a year and a half, probably more. I think I was still trying to figure it out. I was once approached by a manager who asked me why I didn't have representation. And I said, well, because I don't, and he asked it aggressively, like, what's wrong with you? Because mm. at this point, I was like a visible person at UCB. And he said, Why you're the only person here who doesn't have an agent or a manager at your level? And I said, I don't have any interest in working in show business. Well, wait, so wait, why do improv?
0: Because everyone that does improv wants to be bigger than improv.
1: Um, that's that maybe that's an editorialization, but. I think that's a common thing, but I would say um, that's not a good reason to do it. That's my own take on it, is that, like, if it's a stepping stone to something else, if that's your main reason for doing it, and I see a lot of people who that is the thing where it's like, well, I got to do this. That was my problem before. I was approaching acting as, well, if I do this play at the royal court, it will lead to the next thing, which is even better. And for me, what I liked about improv was uh, it was everything that I had lost over the over the period from like 1993 when I graduated high school to you know 2002 or three or whenever. Every step of the way, I liked acting a little less. I played the Tin Man once in a um, in a children's theater production of The Wizard of Oz, and to do like, and this was in when I was in high school. Okay. And I decided to go very, like, do research, <laughs> like, like, like Daniel, like Daniel Day Lewis or Meryl Streep or Robert De Niro. I was like, I read all the Oz books because I was like, who is this guy? And because I thought the Tin Man was kind of a boring character. It's like the least fun of the, of the trio. Like the lion's really fun. The scarecrow's really fun. And the Tin Man is just sort of there. He's like, he's just in the middle to balance the other two that are more fun. <laughs> and so I'm like, what is this guy? So I read all the Oz books and the origin of the Tin Man in uh, in the books, is that originally he was just a woodsman, and he fell in love with a Munchkin girl who belonged or worked for the Wicked Witch of the East, and she didn't like this um, relationship. She didn't approve of this relationship, so what? So she cast a spell on the woodsman, so he started hacking off his own body parts. He hacked off his own arm, and then That's he went to dark. Then he went to a local tinsmith, and had a, a tin arm made. And then he hacked off his other arm and he just kept off hacking pieces of himself away until there was nothing left of him. He was entirely made of tin and that's, and then he had no heart. So he couldn't, he was no longer in love with the Munchkin girl. And the, uh, which I think is such a, I was like, Oh great. This character has hidden depths. This is a horror movie, but that is kind of like what it felt like transitioning from an amateur to a professional actor is that each part hacked away at some part of me that liked doing it until I was just miserable trying to do a thing that I no longer even cared about. And when I was at UCB doing improv shows, I wasn't making money cause you don't get paid for doing the shows. Yeah. Um, but uh, I never felt more satisfaction as a performer than when I was doing a good show at UCB and the audience was into it. I've never had better audiences. I've never had uh, a better feeling. I've never felt more alive as a performer. And, uh, and that was, that meant more to me than whether or not I was making my living at it. But there's, there's,
0: I mean, uh, if you don't mind me saying like Connor, it feels like there's a bit of a darkness there in, in, in why you are doing so well is that there's,
1: you're almost like apathy is your fuel. Um, I wouldn't say apathy because I would, I would care. I would care about it. Like it was important to me when I'm one thing that I'm sort of notoriously terrible at in improv because it's just not a priority to me is editing scenes, which mm. is it's a responsibility that you owe to your teammates is to, to be a good editor of scenes Which means, like, people are doing a scene and you, like, run across it and end their scene for them. And I'm more likely to enter your scene when it's failing than I am to run across and edit it. And uh, sometimes the ideal thing is you want a scene to be going so well that everyone's laughing and then you triumphantly run across the stage and the audience feels like, oh, we wanted to see so much more. And you're like, quit while you're ahead. Um, and then there's a thing called a mercy edit, which is the scene's going so bad that someone just runs across in silence and everybody knows it's just like, yeah, we're just putting this scene out of its misery. I am notoriously more likely to enter a failing scene to try to like revive it than I am to end it.
0: Yeah. Well, so how does this lead to dead eyes? Because to to for me, I seriously think it's one of the best podcasts I've heard ever in the in the sense that it is this multi-dimensional experience exploring grief um, exploring victory um, and the people that come along for the ride whether whether you know them or not before I mean in some cases that you do in some cases you don't like yeah the discussion that's had is unlike anything I've ever heard in a podcast and I've listened to a obscene amount of comedy podcasts yeah and, and all that stuff but it's like shout out to the producer and everyone like I felt so entrenched in your journey and also the desire for a resolution. Yeah. And and I don't even know if we got it. And, but that's, you know, but I mean, people have to listen, but like that podcast to me, I don't know, maybe that's your magnum opus. I don't know, but it's, it's unbelievable. How did that happen?
1: I've been thinking about it for a while. So I started like sort of dipping back into acting and then... I was doing the Chris Gathard show every week, which was, you know, not for money, but that was a thing we were doing on public access. And I did like a hundred and however many episodes of that. And that got picked up as a show on fusion. And I decided and they are they said, Will you be the warm-up comic for this every week? And at that point I thought, you know what? I'm gonna quit my bookstore job.
0: Some of us are going back into offices, and some of us are staying put, but all of us need to change our gear up. P. Johnson is a custom men's clothier with a focus on soft tailoring, comfort, and a natural laid-back elegance. With their own private factory in Italy and lush showroom in New York, Sydney, Melbourne, and London, you can easily stop in and see for yourself. Or check out one of their trunk shows visiting all over the United States. Australia, Southeast Asia, you name it, they're there. Visit PJT.com to view their lookbooks and see for yourself. Or geez, look them up on Instagram. It's a perfect put-together look, but not contrived. It's simple, it's elegant, and flattering. And now, P. Johnson builds individually crafted top-to-bottom wardrobes for those who want a stylish and personalized edge. We're not just talking about suits. Wait till you see their denim. They have also nailed the overshirt. A overshirt is that perfect thing that you can wear over a shirt, but it's not a sport coat. You can order your own with any of their amazing fabrics from Laura Piana and more. Visit pjt.com to learn more or go to their Instagram. You'll see their new eyewear, overshirts, you name it. It's a vibe. It's P. Johnson. Anyone else gotten really into packages? Maybe it's quarantine life, but I can't wait for the mail every day. I recently signed up for Bespoke Post and have really enjoyed it. Bespoke Post is here with their customized Box of Awesome collection for folks. They're guaranteed to upgrade your life. Each box is different. I got a killer box to unwind filled with candles and skincare products and another box filled with great baking and cooking gear. Bespoke post only sends folks the best stuff every month. No matter what you're into, Box of Awesome has you covered. From style and grooming goods to barware, cooking tools, and outdoor gear, Box of Awesome has carefully built collections for every part of your life. To get started, take the quiz at boxofawesome.com. Your answers will help them pick the right box of awesome for you. There's the cocktail kit to age your own cocktails, which I'm looking forward to next. They release new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. You're not just going to get some t-shirt. Each box costs 45 bucks, but has $70 worth of gear inside, right? Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code BLAMO at checkout for 20% off your first box. It's free to sign up and you can skip a month or cancel anytime. So check out bespoke post at boxofawesome.com. Enter coupon code BLAMO for 20% off your first box.
1: Because I think I can, I think I can do this. I think I can like make a living if, the, if this is, and I was really terrified because I was thinking, well, every time I try to make something work, then it, falls apart. When I'm not trying, things go great. You know, like when I, in terms of acting professionally, like I started like getting stuff, I started getting like, and sometimes I wouldn't even have to audition for it. Like I got a little recurring part on the show search party and I never auditioned for it. They just reached out to me and offered it to me because they knew that I was funny from seeing me at UCB. And I would get called into podcast places every now and then to say like, do you have any ideas for podcasts? And I would always throw out a few ideas and at the end of them, I would usually say, I also have one idea. I think this would be a really good idea for a podcast. And it would be like, I got fired by Tom Hanks from Band of Brothers. And they'd be like, what is the podcast exactly? Like, <laughs> well, it's, we like investigate it. And they were like, what do you, what do you mean? And I'd be like, it'll be like, a uh, like we'll treat it as if it's like, Who you know? Who knows what? And and we'll talk to people. We'll see. Like we'll try to get to the bottom of it. And they will be like, "Well, get to the bottom of what?" And I'm like, "Look, it'll be funny. Like it'll be funny, but it'll also be sincere." And then finally, um, I had one of those meetings uh, at Earwolf. So we recorded a pilot. The and they were great about like you know I got to put this whole thing together and. And then uh, I said, do you want to keep doing And I had I, I loaded the pilot with I, I, like I put my friend Darcy Carden and Zach was I really called in every favor I could. And then I'm like, I got John Hamm to be on it. And so I said, based on this, you know, I turned in this like star studded pilot episode where it tells the whole story. And what I heard back was that, like. There was like, some people really got it and were like, we know what this is. And other people were like, is this a parody or is it sincere? And I'm like, no, it is sincere, but it's also like playing with the form of like these very, this, normally this isn't the tone of a podcast about something so insignificant. And I'm like, that's what'll be funny about it. And ultimately they were like, well, we want to release, we'll release it as an episode of Earwolf Presents and then see how it does. And at that point I said, okay, but we're cutting it in half because- I don't want to give you the full John Hamm interview unless it's a commitment to the the full good good series. It's the smartest. <laughs> as, as I was impressed that I actually thought of a smart uh, business approach to it, where I was like, <laughs> "We'll have it be like a cliffhanger at the end of the uh, of the pilot." And I was thinking, who could resist that? That the end of the pilot is like, "I'm going to talk to John Hamm," and that's episode two. And then ultimately, and I don't really know why exactly, but ultimately it didn't end up going. Uh, any further at earwolf. And I was kind of devastated because I thought, I know this is a good podcast. Like I know this will be, and, and some, some people, I had some feedback that were like, well, this needs to be a limited series. It can only really be three or four episodes. And I was like, are you kidding me? This is my life. This can't be three or four episodes. (laughs) Um, the, I was like, I have at one point, like one of the, I got a note from somebody that was like, we, we can't imagine this being more than like three or four episodes. And I was like, let me give you a list. I gave them a list of <laughs> what I thought were 20 possible episodes. And uh and then there was also like we don't think you'll get Tom Hanks. And I said, "Well, Cinema Typewriter, you can still do it. You may be right. I don't know. But that's part of what is interesting to me about this is I don't yeah. think the podcast I don't think the podcast is anywhere close to as interesting if when the first episode is released, we already have you know, the ending recorded and locked. I think part of what's important about what makes the podcast work is we don't know what's going to happen next. That's never been truer or never felt truer than it, than in 2020 that like, that is just one of the, that is one of the things that life is, is that you don't always get what you want and you don't know what's going to happen next. So I, we made the, I was very lucky because we had the Earwolf Presents episode out, and uh, and it got really good response. People really liked it. And then there was a point last year where I thought, I'm going to have to make this thing on my phone. Like, I'm just going to have to, like, do it myself because I couldn't get anybody interested. And I was very fortunate that um, I'm friends with Ben Schwartz, and he, he saw me. I tweeted something in frustration about how, like, does anybody know how to get a podcast onto a podcast network? And he was like, "Do you want me to talk to Jake and Amir about Dead Eyes because I think it's really good?" And I was like, "I would love it." And I think within like a day, we we were like set to go and keep doing it at Headgum, and Harry was going to be able to keep doing it uh, as one of the producers, and we got a uh, Mike Cometa is the other producer. Harry and Mike are the ones who really make it. Um, a quality podcast. I think I'm good at providing quality substance inside the podcast, but they're the ones who I think are really make it an artistically high quality podcast. I had to sort of make my piece with what my role in show business is, what my place in show business is in order for this to be a fun podcast. I wanted to be very clear that this was, 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 not some sort of like revenge podcast or this, there wasn't like a, a, it wasn't like a bitter actor's journey into like, I want answers. Like it's, it's someone who realizes, I realize whatever went wrong in the casting process, which clearly you, you know, if you have to fire an actor before even shooting a line of dialogue, something went wrong in the casting process. Yeah. But I am as culpable as anybody in that process in terms of, like, um, taking it too personally, making too big a deal of it in my own mind. Uh, At the same time, it's hard not to because it's such a – Band of Brothers still is such a big sort of cultural touchstone. Like, you – I can't log on to, like, HBO Max without every now and then seeing a thing (laughs) that's recommending, like, you should watch this.
0: Uh, Real talk, I found your podcast because every year around D-Day – I get all sentimental. I reread Band of Brothers. I reread, um, you know, the the memoirs of Major Dick Winters. And I end up watching all of Band of Brothers. And I was like, there's a, there are podcasts for everything. There's got to be a podcast about Band of Brothers. And I searched Band of Brothers and I found Dead Eyes. And I was like, how the fuck did I miss this? And I read everything. And I read AV Club. I read all these things. And I was like, oh, my God. And and I so I started listening to it. And obviously, I mean, I I went and... You know, it took the took the whole season in I don't know in the in the span of a few days, but it was just like that was how I found it, and I think you know because I'm I listen to comedy podcasts, but also I mean I love Scott Ackerman and Comedy Bang Bang, but some of that stuff I'm like this is so inside baseball, mm-hmm. this is so I don't even know who that character was because I didn't listen to this episode two hundred weeks ago. I right. don't you know. So the thing about Dead Eyes is. I got into it because of Band of Brothers, but also I'm someone who likes, you know, acting. I like that other stuff. I'm not, you know, in it anything. Yeah. But that was what pulled me in. And then I was like, oh, wait, this is actually a story about redemption, grief and process. And it's done really well because especially right now, there's nothing that like it's done in a way where like I don't really have pity for you in the sense where it's it's not it's not like oh feel no. so sorry for Connor it's just like this is exciting this is what happened and look what's happening now
1: well it's also uh, yeah and I never well here's the thing I've had I'm having so much fun making this podcast there's no reason I wouldn't want if anybody's response to it even if you want to think about like, oh god that sucked or that felt bad or something like that that's fine but like the podcast itself is not like um asking for people to like root for me in <laughs> anything other than like uh you know, the the obvious, like, proposal in, in the premise of the podcast is it would be great to, at any point, have a conversation with Tom Hanks because we had an interaction as people, but it was as people with... We were part of this process where he was directing this thing that he was producing and he's one of the biggest and most beloved movie stars in the world. And I was hired to be a very, very small part of this and it wasn't working out. And so our interaction was... There were, it was like there couldn't have been more layers between us in terms of whatever emotions were in the room, in terms of, you know, the, the level of anxiety, uh, and pressure that was surely involved in making, you know, the most expensive miniseries of all time. And, and then my final audition right before I got fired, which was for Tom Hanks. That was the most meaningful interaction I'd ever had with a movie star and a movie star that I loved. And, there's something that breaks your brain a little in terms of like well, I'll reverse it. There there's um there's a podcast that I do with my friend JD Amato, and it's it's kind of in some ways an art project because we do this project, we've done it for uh, uh years now called Twelve Hour Day with JD and Connor. And every episode is at least 12 hours long. That's insane. And and it's just a <laughs> we just spend a day together and we record the whole time, and wherever we go, we're recording. And one time we flew to Colorado for a wedding during an episode, and we fell asleep on the plane. And so there's like three hours of just ambient airplane noise because we both fell asleep because we were so tired. And this is a this is a niche podcast. This is a <laughs> anyone who's listened to the podcast knows me as well as uh, you know, a lot of people who've hung out with me for years. You know that they've actually uh heard a lot they know what i'd be like in conversation they know what joke i would make they know what what the rhythms of it are so it's a similar kind of thing when i met tom hanks for that audition i was like i'm not just meeting the guy who's about to fire me i'm meeting the guy who fell in love with the mermaid i'm meeting the guy <laughs> the drunk guy who coached the women's baseball team i'm meeting the you know the, i've seen you i've seen you have your best friend die in your arms in vietnam like there's all these like experiences that i've had with tom hanks playing characters and now i'm in a room with him it was overwhelming um and then to experience something that is like both personally and professionally like devastating it didn't Mm. matter that it was just it was nothing it was a small role uh it wouldn't have led me to something else but you never would have been able to convince me of that back in 2000 if you'd said to me connor let me tell you what would have happened if you'd played this role. It would have come out in 2001. Um, It would have aired, your episode would have aired on HBO like a few weeks after 9-11 and no one would have cared that 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 character came in and laid some papers on the desk, left, came back in, left again, and then you're done. And later, I think you drive a Jeep for a minute or something in another episode. If you had told me back then you would not have been able to convince me that this wasn't the role that was going to, I was going to like charm the production and they were going to think this kid's got something, you know, we should keep him in mind for something else later. You know, like I was convinced that I had lost my big opportunity. And now when I'm doing the podcast, obviously I know better. I obviously uh, I'm still incredibly stupid about so many things. And I don't pretend to understand show business, but I do understand a lot more about what show business isn't. And for Dead Eyes, a lot of the the fuel of it for me is I already thought I've already thought several times that it was going to be over for bad reasons. First, I thought I wasn't going to get to make more episodes of it. Then. You know, we we recorded a bunch of stuff in like December and January and February, and then I went on tour with Guster, with Guster, with the band Guster, which is another thing I you know never would have expected. We sort of like uh, fell into being like pals, and I had them do a, a comedy show, and I'd done some comedy stuff with Ryan, and then he had this idea that I could go on tour with them and do comedy, and I'm on the road. And I'm thinking, I'm lining up the interviews for the mid-tour break. I have people, we've got a week's worth of people that I'm going to go back to New York for a week and record all these interviews. And and so we did this show, and the show was going really well. And I went backstage, and there were a couple of musicians backstage, and they said, don't check your phone. And I said, why? And they said, it's all bad. God, well, I have to check my phone. And I looked at my phone and I had like a hundred text messages. And I was like, that's not good on a Wednesday night. Like nothing good happens on a Wednesday night that everybody texts you about. I didn't, you know, that's not when they announce good things, you know? And it was that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson had uh, the coronavirus. And I had to like, I had to like be a professional go back out and be funny for another 10 minutes. But as soon as the show is over, I went backstage and I was like, "Well, my fun little podcast is done," Um, because at the time, you know, I feel like we know know, we know so little uh, uh, still. I feel about this disease, but we knew even less back in March. And in March, hearing that they had the coronavirus was like, it it felt like, "Oh, they're not going to recover from this." Yeah, that and that means that this podcast is now like a sick joke. Like I can't continue talking about this if that's the context we're living in. And then it was like a few weeks later, I realized, you know, like this isn't a podcast about COVID-19 or about this, even about this moment we're living in. But the more I thought about it, I was like, it is processing a lot of the same negative emotions into trying to figure out how to like cope with stuff because mm-hmm. the podcast is about, like, hey, I didn't get what I wanted, and let's like dig into it and like let's talk about how we process those things and how we, um, um, no, this I'll just say it because it was about to naturally fall out of my mouth. And I thought, oh, this is you can't always get what you want, <laughs> and but but if you try sometimes, <laughs> um, no, but I do think, I do think that like. Um, in a weird way, like the message at the beginning of the of the first of the pilot of Dead Eyes is, "I'm fine, guys." Before we before we go into this, like this isn't a thing that still bugs me, but it is like a fun story. Even a, even if it had been like a major actor, even if, been, if I'd been fired by Gary Sinise, <laughs> the podcast wouldn't really pop. You know what I mean? People would be like, "Very true." It it, it had to be him well and also
0: band of brothers because there were so because like i forgot jimmy fallon's and band of brothers i yeah. literally sent the show to a friend of mine is jimmy fallon stylist and i was like you have to get jimmy to go on this show i was like because he you know also his acting is so bad because he's like really happy and it's like you're about to go to the battle of the balls chill out
1: too <laughs> i yeah we we i really want Jimmy Fallon is on my list of people that I really would love to talk to. I will help um, you.
0: I will do whatever I can to help you make that happen.
1: But, yeah, yeah. I, um, and but it it is one of those it is one of those things where um, you're yeah the fact that it's Band of Brothers if if this had been it wouldn't be the same podcast if it was um, that I auditioned for that thing you do. And I didn't mm. get cast because that thing you do, even though that's one of my favorite movies, I I love that film. It's it's a it's this gem of a kind of personal film, and it's it's popular, but it exists within this like pocket of the culture. Whereas like Band of Brothers is this like thing that spreads itself across the culture because it's not just the biggest uh, miniseries that had ever been made up to that point, but it's it's Spielberg, it's Hanks, it's a it's following on from Saving Private Ryan, which is this other thing, it ties into like The Greatest Generation and and Tom Brokaw's book. And like, it just is part of a bigger thing. And my story is funnier because it is this tiny little speck on this enormous tableau. A week or two before I got fired, I think it was a week or two before, they had me come down for a costume fitting and to get my hair cut. And... When I I was in Liverpool and I took a train down to London and they had a driver meet me at the um, they had a driver meet me at the uh, uh, train station to take me up to uh, Hatfield um, the the airfield where they were filming and I remember the driver's name was Bernie and I remember (laughs) feeling like I was in like a, a kids movie from the 80s where I had like this British chauffeur like it felt like this feels like something that happens in like a certain kind of like eighties comedy where like a kid's being driven around the big city in a, a town car. Yeah. And Bernie was like very talkative, but he was also, he was like from central casting. I mean, we're in London and he's a driver, but he is like who you would cast to be like the British limo driver of like Richie rich or somebody. <laughs> and we pull onto this like golf course. this like big country club. um, And we pull up to where all of the film trucks are. And there's all these, I'd never been on a film set before. There are all these like wires and cameras and lights and everyone's scurrying around, but there's no one to meet me. And I didn't know at the time that that was odd that normally if you're an actor and you show up, there's a PA who's there to make sure you don't get lost. So I was just like, wandered inside. There was like this house on the property of the golf course. I wander into the house and no one will pay attention to me. I'm like trying to ask like, hi. I'm supposed to go to hair and makeup for this. And they're like, People are just like blanking me, and then finally, I get to what looks like someone who's like close to being in charge. I'm like, I'm so sorry, I'm lost. I'm Connor Ratliff. I'm an actor. I'm supposed to go to hair and makeup, and I, my dri- The driver just took me here, and I think I might be in the wrong spot. And he, we talked for like thirty seconds before something clicked in this guy, and he realized I was there for Band of Brothers, and this was not Band of Brothers. This was some other. Film production, but as soon as everybody realized I was part of Band of Brothers, whatever this was, and I never found out what it was, never asked, suddenly I was the center of attention. Everyone was like, "Oh, you're part of Band of Brothers," and they were all everyone wanted to help, and everyone was like, <laughs> they were all very excited. And then I was like, "No, no, no, I got to get out of here. I'm in the wrong place." And I remember going back down to the car. I was like, "Bernie, this is the wrong place," and Bernie's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry," and 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 then it was like it was like a mile up the road or something. It was just like he saw a filming place and took me to the wrong thing, and. That guy and so I was thinking at the time, oh my god, I have such a funny story from this Band of Brothers experience. This will be my, <laughs> this was, you know, this will be my funny story I tell people. I almost never tell people that story. And the um, the only th- the thing that ties into the Dead Eyes experience was that um, when I had to go down for the re audition, when it was over, Bernie was the one who drove me back. It was he was he had driven me and casting director Suzanne Smith from uh, um, from London up to Hatfield for the re audition, and she was like with me for that whole drive, and then the drive back was me and Bernie. But I, you know, all of this stuff is the opportunities that I've had, even just in the first like ten episodes of this, because I don't know how long it will go. But by the time we got to, like, the Amy Mann episode, that only happened because Amy Mann listened to the early episodes and really liked the podcast. Well, same with, like, Seth Rogen and stuff, right? Same with Seth Rogen. And those are both conversations that are – that ended up being directly related to so many of the uh, – you know, the fact that Seth Rogen has a Band of Brothers story, you know, that, like um, – and I think – The way that – because I think like the sort of like the most optimistic thing about the podcast is there is this underlying vibe of like we're all connected, which is a very like new agey sort of thing to say. If you start looking for connections between people, you find them in ways that are sometimes uh, seem absurd. They seem so unlikely. And the fact that this little tiny story, this little thing that happened to me uh, in – it's spider webs out into so many other areas. And then even once you get away from the story itself, if you can get as much, if you can milk as much enjoyment out of a disappointing experience as I have managed to milk out of uh, this one, you've, you've done all right. You know that like <laughs> n- not every, not every disappointing experience has the potential for that, but it is like, that is the thing that I've learned to do as I got, as I've gotten older to try to figure out like, well, this didn't work out. What do we have? Like, what can we do with it? You know? Um, which to me, you know, that feels like the kind of thing that you would hear Tom Hanks say in an interview. I was sitting here with my parents watching the first Saturday night live at home where he was the surprise guest host. And it's probably the most inspirational thing I've seen all year is his, his address. Like he did a couple of jokes And then he said something that I honestly thought that's what a president should have said that we haven't had this year is like somebody who gets up and says something. We have not had somebody to stand up and say like, this is a tough time and we got to get through this and we got to be there for each other by staying away from each other. And like, what a weird year it is, you know? But I, but I was like sitting there, I'm thinking like, uh, I'm here with my parents and there's a plague on and I'm watching my old boss, <laughs> oh, the guy, the guy who fired me and he's saying something that is like beautiful and smart, but also uh, rational and, uh, you know, managing expectations in a way that people need right now. I think almost, almost all the interviews I've read with him this year have had something in them that I'm like, this should have been a national address that was <laughs> like carried on, uh, on every channel, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, his, um his Conan thing was pretty good. Yeah. And, but it's a friend of mine. She does PR for Apple Mm -hmm. and the stuff he said, I think it was in like a a British thing. I don't know. It was like the daily, daily mail or daily news where he basically said that he was just like, we're absolutely heartbroken and devastated that it can't be in theaters. And right. you know, he he more or less kind of like poo-poos the fact that like, oh boo hoo, it has to be on Apple. Right. And I think Apple, I think they spent like just a crazy amount of money on advertising for it. But there was like an internal shitstorm storm between and then he, in and the crazy thing is they reached out to Tom's people and they were like, you can't say like how disappointed you are that it's coming out on streaming. This is a big deal. We spent all this money in Greyhound, da, da, da. And then he says it again that same day when they recorded the Conan thing. Well, um, and he, yeah, yeah. And,
1: here's, and here's the thing. <clears throat> the people who are panicking about that, I mean, it drives me crazy because he, it, it defies logic. Part of the reason that everybody loves Tom Hanks is that Tom Hanks is not a guy who's going to go uh, talk to a journalist and say it's always been my dream that my yeah. World War II, this movie that we ro- that we clearly made for the big screen. Yeah, I'm so happy that a lot of people are going to be watching it on their phones or on their iPads. You know, uh, I think I I bought Apple plus Apple TV plus um, specifically to watch Greyhound. I watch I'm watching it with my parents on their nice big TV. And we got the lights out. We got the phone off. We're enjoying it as if it's a theater movie. And it's great. I highly recommend. Easily worth the $5 to get Apple TV+. Plus. But at the same time, you can't just pretend that you made a movie for the big screen and that you're happy that it can't be shown in movie theaters. And that's also not a slight against Apple TV+. Plus. Yeah, exactly. That's that's not a slam. It'd be one thing if there was no plague on and the movie theaters were all open. And for some reason it couldn't get released in theaters. And he was like, Oh, we had to do it on this. Then they could be like, Oh, this makes it sound really bad. It doesn't sound bad to say you don't like the fact that the plague closed all the movie theaters. Yeah. Um, I love that. He said it again, because I, because I also think that's people who are, I get why they're panicking. I get why they don't like it. But at the same time, I think it's refreshing. I, I love watching stuff on streaming and I don't think it's an insult to say I'm also sad that I can't go see movies in the movie theater because I like to see movies in the movie theater. And then I like to watch them later on streaming. You know, I have to say we haven't put out the 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 bat signal for Tom Hanks yet. We, we've we put the podcast out into the world, so I'm sure that creates a certain amount of uh, awareness. There's a certain I, I'm aware of like ripples and. Uh, ways in which I feel like he has probably some awareness of it by now. Yeah. Um, but we haven't, like, we haven't made that ask. And in some ways, that's because I feel like it's still early days. And I also feel like I'm very wary about, um... Once you put certain asks out into the world and you get your answer, if the answer is bad, then you just have to that, you have to live in that reality. And I would rather try to make my way to like I want to talk to Damien Lewis because he's the guy I would have done my I would have been playing his assistant. Yeah, and um, and we're trying, but like these things are delicate, you know. Like I'm hoping that at some point. Uh, he will hear the podcast and maybe enjoy it and want to talk to me because I've heard him on podcasts talking about his band of brotherhood edition story, which is tremendous. He has another one, which is really great. Um, But I think it would be like worth it, you know, like to try to find those connections, you know, you
0: got to get some of the Harry Potter folks. I know that's totally unrelated, but that's also the cool thing about band of brothers is it's a world. It's right. also a ma- It was a massive, massive production of a lot of people. Yeah. And, the Harry Potter stuff is similar in that. I mean, please don't take any of my advice, but just like that's that is another sort of like any sort of like Lord of the Rings world, been right. a Harry Potter world. You know,
1: the 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 luck we've had is has been people listening to the podcast, hearing that it's good and then wanting to be a part of something that's good and interesting and fun. And there's no part of this experience now that is bad for me. Yeah. And that's kind of an amazing thing. And that's part of what the podcast is. It's like it's been one of the most enjoyable and fulfilling experiences of my creative life is making this podcast. And and I wouldn't – if you went back and said, guess what? We can change history. You get to be that part in Band of Brothers. I would beg you to not – no, please do not change a thing. Like do not do that. It ruins my podcast. If I'm in that if I don't get fired back, like if someone had a time machine and they wanted to really screw me over, the first thing you could do is go back in time and convince Tom Hanks not to fire me because I'd be like, you're ruining, you're ruining the only thing that's getting me through covid 19. you know well uh, this this was
0: awesome. I, you've been extraordinarily generous with your time and I, I really, really appreciate this. Well, thank you so much, yes yeah, so and we'll we'll chat again. You've been listening to Blammo. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're edited by Brendan Finn, and we're produced by Blammo Media. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blammo Podcast, and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. If you want to, do it. If you don't, don't. But every day, I'm gonna every freaking week, I'm gonna say, "Yo, leave a review." It's not that hard. Go put that thing, slide that thing to five stars. You do it and you get that dopamine kick. It's like getting a like on Instagram. It feels so good. If you want even more Blammo, head over to patreon.com forward slash Blammo to join the Blam Fam. You'll get access to additional interviews, which there are a ton of now. A community slack, which are also tons of folks. Special events. Yes, they're coming. And more. Best of all, you're supporting the show. It's amazing. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.